welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast, brought to you by political expert Robert Morris and that man you wish would stop interrupting him, Rory McElhone. Okay, uh, well, hello, Rory. How's it going? Hey, it's going very well. How are you getting on, Rob? Uh, no complaints. No complaints. The The amazing weather in New York continues. The midterm elections seem to have been going well. Crypto's mm-hmm. exploding. Putin is losing. I mean, <laughs> it's surprisingly good week all around. Mm-hmm. You're not a big crypto fan, no? Uh, I'm not a big crypto fan, okay. no. Uh, no, I, I've been aware of it for... Uh, I think I remember reading about Bitcoin on Hacker News back in like 2009, mm-hmm. 2010, thereabouts, and thinking yeah. to myself, this doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was sort of progressively more and more perplexed price boom after price boom as it just sort of mm-hmm. continued to go on and more and more official seeming types uh, were endorsing it. And it still just just didn't seem to make sense to me. And uh, it is a little gratifying to see it not making sense on a, on, a, on a larger scale. Do you know who else doesn't like cryptocurrency? Who? The Chinese government. That's true. The Chinese government does not like cryptocurrency. And that is a fantastic segue into talking about what I wanted to talk about. Well, well done, Rory. Because uh, today I'd like to talk about China, uh, mm-hmm. specifically kind of the, the stunning transformation in the global perception of China's prospects that we mm-hmm. seem to be going through right now. I think that for decades now, uh, and I include myself in this, most of the world has operated under the assumption that China is about, is on the cusp of surpassing the United States economically. It is, you know, Asia is where the future is. Well, you hear a lot about their uh, military ambitions into Taiwan. For sure. And I think, uh, as I hope to get into today, I think that, that these two things are connected because we've we've expected them to just become bigger and bigger and more and more threatening for mm-hmm. decades now. And w- what seems to be dawning on people uh, uh, began to dawn on folks uh, about five years ago is mm-hmm. sort of began to dawn on me in the past two or three years. And I think is now coming to mass realization is that this this old idea of China's imminent dominance, China about to take over, uh, has kind of collapsed uh, over the past five or six years, which is kind of extraordinary. The thing is, there's a lot of momentum behind this idea. And there's a ton of momentum, specifically in U.S. media, which I see as sort of a subsidiary arm of the U.S. military industrial complex. There's a lot about the idea. There's a lot of momentum behind the idea that the United States and China are going to go to war over Taiwan. And the problem with a China that is actually no longer going from strength to strength is that it may not, in fact, be able to just uh, continue to sort of, you know, fall downstairs into dominance and ownership of Taiwan, which just seems to have been the way, the assumption that much of the United States and much of the U.S. and world media have been operating under. So we're in this weird position where uh, if if Washington, D.C. wants a war over Taiwan and it's hard to avoid the conclusion that it really, really does, <laughs> it's got to it's got to push it. It's got to make it happen yeah. as soon as possible. Um, and that's why we're seeing so much talk about war over Taiwan in the U.S. and world media recently is that if it doesn't happen now, it's probably not going to happen. Similar to Putin with his uh, uh, generation of young men, I heard that if he doesn't do it now, he just won't have the manpower to do it. Very similar. Very similar. Did we see much of this decline in China's recent uh, meeting of a decade? I would say so. I mean, there's in-depth analysis that I have, to be quite frank, not done. I've just seen the highlights with the um, old leader being kicked out. Yeah, that was quite uh, that was quite something. Uh, Hu Jintao being uh, mm-hmm. ushered out. Uh, I think. I mean, who knows whether it was a mistake, whether it was a conscious 
Well, once, even if it was a mistake, once it starts to happen, you're fully aware of the optics as, as Xi Jinping would have been. I think that's, I think that's probably true. Even if it's the most benign thing in the world, once you see him being manhandled out of there, you know that it looks dreadful, but it also shows you are in ultimate power. Very true. Very true. I'm hesitant to, to dive into that depth of analysis. I'm just mm -hmm. not sure. I think there's some oh, question yes. of which broadcasts that showed up on. You know, was it on the live mm -hmm. broadcast? Was it on the rebroadcasts? Or was it not? It, it's a, a, a tremendously complex question. But I think I think you're right in, in pointing out that it, it, it symbolizes, whether intentionally or not, a uh, changing of the guard. A switch uh, for, of China from a more corporate, more oligarchical structure into mm -hmm. one where Xi Jinping is very much the man, the man in and charge. And considering it is as a legendary third term. Indeed. Indeed. Well, it's not legendary. It's I guess we're in it now, aren't we? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I think the the the, uh, the completion of that conference which comes only that congress rather which it comes yes. only every five years uh, that's the mm -hmm. that's the starting gun uh, xi jinping is now in his third term in power which is will it be a term of decline i think that's well the first two certainly have been so uh why i don't see much indication that uh, we're going to see a switch uh, in this third mm -hmm. term and what's interesting about xi jinping is that his uh, advent as a strong man, I think this was something that was looked uh, likely five years ago at the last party Congress and was, I think, openly started openly being known in 2018 was that Xi Jinping was the new strong man, you know, leader for life, what have you. And I think the United States, in the United States media, this is read as some sort of deeply intimidating thing, some terrifying uh, advent of a neo-Mao or what have you. And yeah. it is I, it is a profoundly sad thing, but I would argue mm -hmm. that the advent of Xi Jinping is an indication of weakness, of extraordinary weakness. It's an indication that the Chinese political system is uh, quite rightly terrified of the United States. Does it not help America because, well, they know the cut of his jib. They know what to expect for the next 10 years. Yes, I think there's definitely some truth to that. And also to go further, like we know he's a failure. Mm -hmm. We know he's bad at this job. Uh, yeah. if, you, if you just look at GDP growth in China uh, since he came to power in, I guess, 2013, it's just been a relentless uh, drip downwards. Uh, China hasn't grown at more than 10% a year. Uh, this is where, you know, that those kinds of levels, 10%. Well, it's down to around 3%, isn't it? This year, it is expected to fall under 3%, which is I kind of bizarre, extraordinary. Is Ireland's economy growing at about 6% at the moment? <laughs> really? So Ireland is growing dramatically Ireland's faster. Ireland's done bizarrely well at the moment. So I just find it bizarre Ireland's doing better than China, which is hard to believe. It, it is hard to believe. I think there were points. I don't think we actually pulled it off, uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve's uh, mm -hmm. eagerness around interest rates. But there were some forecasts that had the United States growing at a faster pace than China this year. I don't think that's going to end up happening. I think China's yeah. going to end up around 2.8 and the United States is going to end up at somewhere between 1% and 2%. But that's still incredible for America. Exactly. It's absolutely stunning. There's a great Financial Times piece that I just reread this morning pointing out that, well, you know, China can still grow by a percentage point or two faster than the United States every year for the next 40 years and still won't surpass the U.S. economy. Um, it, it needed to mm -hmm. be 5% more, 6% more, 10% more to, to grow the way we were all expecting China to expecting China to grow and it's because well, America has just been so wealthy for so long it will take uh, eon to catch up <laughs> well if 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 China was putting up the kind of numbers they were putting up before Xi Jinping in their mm -hmm. more like corporate friendly yeah yeah business oligarchy under Hu Jintao and I, I always massacre his name Jiang Xi Jinping of course Deng Xiaoping um yeah, I've, I've never quite... Uh, pronunciation is not my strong suit, I'm afraid. Uh, but from Deng onwards, the, the 
the kinds of economic growth that China was putting up there, those numbers, that was a real possibility uh, uh, of China surpassing the United States by 2030. Uh, folks in, in 2010 thought that they'd do it by 2020. Yeah. Um, and now today it's looking a lot more like 2060. And to be clear, it's not all Xi Jinping's uh, screw up. Uh, mm -hmm. China reached a point where that kind of growth just wasn't going to happen. There are many countries, uh, including the United States itself, actually, that have experienced far higher growth than is normal for certain periods of time. Mm -hmm. But you just you just reach a point where you've well, yeah. you've done everything you can. You've done you've the modernize as many people as you can. You've industrialized <laughs> as much as you can. You've exactly. as much as you can. <laughs> you've built all the highways. You've built all the high-speed rail. You've you've uh, you've done you've all poured the, the world a world amount of concrete in ten years. Was it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and now something... they have to maintain it all, <laughs> which is the <laughs> tricky part. Well, I think they're probably grateful for the maintenance. There, the problem is they just don't have enough to spend money on. They can spend mm -hmm. money on maintenance, but you can't spend as much on maintenance as you spend on building. It's hard to get as much um, money together for it and fanfare. You know, people excited for, you know, the renewal of a bridge. People get excited, you know, and look forward to something like bridge and new high-speed rail. But when you're saying we have to spend trillions this year just to make sure everything works okay, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, build the same imagination. It doesn't get as much investment. And that's the real nuts and bolts of governance. Indeed. And I think it, I think you're, get, you're getting at the, the, the diminishing returns. It's not just mm -hmm. about it not being as exciting. It just, you don't get as much economic oomph. You don't get as many multiplier yeah. effects from your 500th uh, highway out in the desert somewhere from a ghost city yeah. to a place that nobody wants to go to. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, as you get out of uh, building the high-speed highway between Beijing and Shanghai, mm -hmm. it's uh, it it's you know, in, I I don't get too deep into the economic statistics myself, but my understanding from reading it is that the value of the investment that China has made, you know, China has had a investment-led boom rather than mm -hmm. a consumer economy-led boom. Yeah. But the value of the investment has just been going down more and more and more, and as mm -hmm. the the Chinese Communist Party knows that their success depends on continued economic growth, but they're in this almost horror movie situation where the things that they used to do that used to goose the economy in the useful ways simply don't do it anymore. They just, they just but don't, also what don't happens once the Chinese stop getting a better standard of living, once things plateau or start to diminish, what do those um, billion plus people do? Oh, I think some kind of Chinese crisis is very likely within the next mm -hmm. decade or two. I, I mean, who knows if they keep sticking to COVID zero, maybe within the next year or two. But the idea that China was like at the start locking down cities and the West sort of went through its whole phase and out the other end and China's like now locking down more than ever. It's just sort of hard to believe <laughs> and somewhat terrifying. It's it's extraordinary. It's it's hard to imagine that yeah, rounding, gosh yeah, rounding three years living like mm -hmm. that. Because that's what first I what got me quite concerned is when you when there's some city you've never heard of of twenty million people that's locked down. You're like I'm gonna take this serious, but it's the fact that it's you know they obviously it felt like as soon as the West kind of got over it, China then went into sort of hyperdrive. Well, the, the thing was that the West didn't really get over it. The West just sort of decided to live with it uh, based on the strength of the vaccines that we developed. Well, that was the other thing. I remember hearing um, there's an Australian podcast called Friendly Geordies. And it's interesting to hear the Australian take on things because they tend to, um, you know, take the Russian and Chinese with more credibility because while they're in the West, they're literally as unwest as you can get. So there were. <laughs> They were considering the, the Russian vaccine and the Chinese vaccine as sort of nearly as credible or better. But the, the facts have turned out that the Western one was far superior and their one was possibly um, as bad as useless. Yeah. So Australia had sort of the best of both worlds. They actually oh, yes. had a Chinese level uh, level 
of seriousness around locking down at the beginning of the pandemic. And then they were able to import the uh, American uh, and European mRNA vaccines. And also export to the Chinese, lots and lots of coal. Their economy kind of wasn't that badly affected. That's always helpful uh, for uh, But no, the Australians do take stuff like that seriously. Like the comedian Bill Bailey was joking about the masking was their soil in his shoes because that could bring in contaminants and destroy Australia's ecosystem. So it is something they've always taken seriously. But it's one of those things when you look at Australia and how remote it is, you're like, you had to get this right, Australia. If you couldn't get this right, you can't get anything right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it is kind of, uh, I feel like there's a little bit of retroactive applauding ourselves in the United States. And then, oh, well, we had vaccines. We didn't need to yeah. do uh, <laughs> any of those lockdowns. And it's like, well, yeah, we've got like a million dead people. So, oh, yes, yes. It could have been a lot hundredth of our population died. Uh, and yeah. I don't think Australia had that. I think Australia was. Very it serious had a few wee, um, hiccups, wasn't it? There was a cruise ship they let in that was like a plague ship. But on the <laughs> whole, they, they, they did well. They did well. Exactly. They did well. And then they got the Western vaccines. And that's sort of... Oh, yes. Uh, it would have been nice if the U.S. could have done something similar. But China has really gone from looking like a, looking like a winner in the first year of COVID to, mm-hmm. <laughs> despite, of course, being the source of the disease, uh, to really just yeah. um, a, a real a real mess. The problem, though, for China, for Australia, for South Korea, was that if the rest of the world had been as serious as they had been about locking things down, mm-hmm. then we would not have, you know, COVID would have been a three-month event. Uh, the problem oh, yes. for folks who opted for zero COVID was that the rest of the world, led by the United States, did not. And it really wouldn't have mattered if uh, everybody in the world had done zero COVID, except for the United States, because the United States is the world's transit hub. Um, but one so... issue China seems to be having as well is it does appear the lab leak is the most plausible at this point, from what I've uh, been reading. And also, um, I think the World Health Organization is now going for the lab leak um, idea. Have you heard much that... about this? Uh, my impression was that the there's been a tremendous backlash to the idea that it definitely wasn't a lab leak. And I think a number of yes. Western news sources got over their skis on condemning people who suggested that that was the case. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the current line is that it could have definitely been a lab leak. Yes, or it's it still not been a wet, certain. Or it could have been a wet market, or it could have yes. been. And I feel like too many people are getting over their skis and saying that now that this thing that used to be a a, a verboten thing to say, now that we can say it and people are saying mm-hmm. it's plausible, it means it was a definitely that. So <laughs> I, I, th- I think this the current state of the science. I could be wrong about this. Is that we we don't know, but that the yes. lab leak definitely looks plausible. Whether it yeah. looks more or less plausible than mm-hmm. the standard, it was a wet market in Hunan explanation. We, yeah. we don't, or in Wuhan, sorry. But both look uh, dreadful for China. Yes. Oh, for sure. Because even for hearing sure. about wet markets, you can think of a wet fish market, but from what I can tell, it's as if you cross an abattoir with a zoo. It's The, the places are just horrific. Hmm. I remember hearing about a BBC journalist saying, I was staring at this creature and I kept thinking, what on earth is that? And then she realized it was a rabbit that had been skinned alive and just left there. Oof. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, I'll buy that. It is quite harrowing. Oh, that's grim. That's it's grim. <laughs> yeah. That's grim. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot in the West. We tend to condemn uh, the Chinese treatment of animals or what have you and, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they... Uh, uh, the, 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 is there some famous market? Is this China or is it perhaps some other Asian country where, you know, folks folks sell dogs to be eaten or something like that? And whenever I, I see whenever I see condemnation of that sort of thing, I sort of mm-hmm. it's like I figure we can you know we can start talking about how China treats its dogs uh, when we start letting China uh, talk to us in the United States anyway about how we treat our grandparents. You know, because <laughs> okay. I, I feel like that you know societies treat. Different things in different ways is generally yes. my approach on that sort of thing. But there's no question that the Chinese have 
really screwed the pooch on COVID um, after looking like uh, winners. Uh, this COVID zero policy where the rest of the world did not adopt it means that they've got that million Americans that we lost. So China's got like three mm -hmm. times that, three to four times that, plus a much worse uh, medical system. So we're talking about if they let up on zero COVID, we're instantly talking about five to 10. And of course, they've got the nationalistic inability to actually purchase these Western vaccines because that'd be terribly mm -hmm. humiliating for them. So if they let up on zero yeah. COVID, they've instantly got like 10 million dead grandparents in a society that actually values old people, unlike mm -hmm. our society, or rather the U.S. society. I guess uh, Ireland, Europe does a much Trump better job. in charge. Is that not the well, highest honor? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, many people are that excited about having Grandpa Joe uh, in charge, <laughs> even those like myself who... who even who those that like him. him. <laughs> yeah, even those that voted for him. I'd, I'd be, be a lot happier with, I don't know, somebody under the age of 60 would be great. But, um, yes. but anyway, so yeah, so China is in this just uh, terrible situation with COVID, but that's only really, it, it's it's a vastly exacerbating factor, but it's only one aspect of just the collapse of China's hyper growth model uh -huh. that, you know, that they're experiencing, that Xi Jinping has overseen. And it's really only what I would argue is just balls out U.S. aggression that's keeping Xi Jinping in power. Because if yeah. it weren't for the constant U.S. aggression, the constant U.S. Uh, reevaluation of long settled issues like Taiwan, uh, mm -hmm. or just the constant level of angry, angry propaganda coming out of Washington, D.C. and various news sources. You know, if, if we keep shouting at Taiwan, as if we keep shouting at China at the top of our lungs as we have been, that we're going to go to war over Taiwan, eventually mm -hmm. China's going to take us up on that. But if it weren't for that, that level of aggression from the United States, then I, I don't think Xi Jinping would have a third term in power. It's it's mm, it's only yeah. fear. It's only fear that keeps this loser in power, because <laughs> by any standard, by the standards that the Chinese Communist Party has historically used to evaluate itself, Xi Jinping's a loser. Like yeah. he's a mess. Uh, you know, the, the growth is plummeting. Now, of course, what you can do is you can go too far in the other direction, uh, as I would argue. Oh, and say they're going to collapse any second now? Exactly. I remember seeing a lot of articles about China will collapse in 27 days. And I thought that's nice to be quite, quite exact. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out it didn't collapse. It did not happen. Did not happen. If China turns out to, let's say, start to diminish over the next couple of years and it's seen as not really a threat. What sort of sideshow in between Cold Wars will America concoct? Oh, Iran. We'll just we'll just start oh, Okay, because another way you had the war on drugs then war on terror. I thought there might be mm -hmm. like a something like that. It isn't quite a tangible enemy. No, we'll just we'll just start bombing Tehran. Um, okay. we won't well or rather Israel will bomb uh, but what if Iran and, has a revolution and thinks the West, uh, you know, thumbs up? <laughs> well, I think the most likely, the most plausible... Are there people in Washington that would be upset if that happened because they've lost an enemy? A hundred percent. Very. God. Deeply, deeply, <laughs> deeply. That's sad deeply, to think. Deeply, deeply disappointed. Uh, but I think, you know, in the warmonger's favor in Washington, D.C., I think most people believe that the most likely step from the theocracy in Iran uh -huh. is from that to uh, IGRC uh, dictatorship. So sort uh -huh. of a dictatorship run by the section of Iran's military that we've spent the most time demonizing. So it probably okay. wouldn't be that difficult uh, yeah. to make the U.S. public just as scared of the Iranian military dictatorship mm -hmm. as we have been of the theocratic Iranian dictatorship. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's sort of the problem with Iran and China and Russia is that it's really easy to trick these countries into being the boogeyman for us. Mm -hmm. You just have to scare well, it's them sort enough. Of such both parties, because if America is letting on, it's scared of them. It makes them look what we're doing is right. Look, the big, mighty America is scared. Exactly. Exactly. And if, if 
the United States constantly acts aggressively towards these countries, then there's there's a legitimate interest in defending the national honor of these countries, in looking mm-hmm. like a strong man. And it's it's this terrible collaboration between uh, U.S. and Iranian hardliners that has kept the uh, theocracy in Iran uh, going, really, mm-hmm. uh, for the past 30 years, I would argue. Uh, in the 80s, it was Saddam Hussein. It was Saddam Hussein yes. attacking Iran that allowed the theocracy, Iran's theocracy, to solidify in as malign a way as it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is it is perhaps counterintuitive, but to me it seems pretty obvious that a lot of the, the authoritarian turn in the world more broadly that the U.S., foreign policy establishment loves to talk about, you know, this idea of democracy versus authoritarianism or what have you is one of the subsidiary themes that the Biden administration is pushing really hard. It's Mm -hmm. like there's just no recognition that these this this authoritarian rise is a direct result in the incredibly aggressive stance that the United States has taken towards the entire world. Over the yes. past twenty years, <laughs> there's just yeah. If you if you want to know, like you know, you talk about the authoritarian boogeyman, like well, what's the old yeah. horror movie trope? Like they're calling from inside the house. You know, it, it's <laughs> it's very much yes. uh, the United States that gave birth to this uh, authoritarian rise. In my mind, well, it's also the other thing. You don't have other countries conducting military exercises around the world quite like America. Like no. I know there's been a lot of hoo-ha over the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, but it appears it's mostly just Chinese companies trying to invest. And if you sort of look at it, compare if you just treat China as an ordinary country, it's not even like in a lot of the countries that they're operating in, they're not even in like the top three investors. And it seems to be Djibouti. They have a military base in. And there's this big hoo-ha about it. But if you look into it, Loads of countries have bases in Djibouti because it's a naval pinch point for global trade, and it's quite often where the Somali pirates like to. Pop I looked up. into this. I looked into this recently, and yeah, the mm-hmm. the U.S. and Djibouti military bases are in the same city, I believe, in Djibouti, just on either sides, just yeah. just on just on alternating sides, which is of the city, which is <laughs> which is quite something. Uh, people forget that. Somali piracy was one of the big scary threats that we were supposed oh, to all yes. care about. And back then... And there was that film about yeah, it. Yeah, of course, there, there, there was that film about it. Sorry, a little um, a little tangent I have. I always think it's like, if an American gets in trouble like abroad in a scenario like that, it's like, bring out the Navy, bring out the Air Force. We'll spend millions to save you. But it's like, if you're homeless in Chicago, it's like, we couldn't care less. Well, you have to understand, Rory, that it's really, really hard to make a trillion dollars off of feeding the homeless, whereas it's really, (laughs) really easy to make a trillion dollars over Mm -hmm. the course of a decade and maintaining a fleet that can go and protect people uh, from Somali pirates. So that's that's sort of... So less Carter, more Bush, is that what you're saying? Something along those lines. Something along those lines. Mm. Uh, Though I was reading recently, Jimmy Carter is the guy who sort of established and began the U.S. presence in the Middle East. I hadn't fully internalized that, but it's some recent research that I've been doing. Yeah, CENTCOM was named under... CENTCOM is the U.S. uh, military organization that is essentially the imperial proconsul or viceroy that runs the Middle Mm -hmm. East. Uh, That was named under the Reagan administration, but the entity was established by Jimmy Carter around the time of the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, I think it kind of was the luck of the draw uh, that Carter was there. Oh, absolutely. uh, That's just what happens. When it blew up. Circumstances. Circumstances. But going back to the Somali pirate thing and the Chinese base Mm -hmm. in uh, Djibouti is that it's folks don't recall that. That was one of the, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about sort of bridging fuels, the way that terrorism was used to get the Pentagon uh, gravy train from the Cold War to, to China, um, sort of that intervening. Yeah. There was this great, um, very active uh, pundit 
competition almost in finding threats that could be confronted militarily. Uh, there's uh, Robert Kaplan is this guy who wrote, uh, the, what was that article called? It's called The Coming Disorder, talking about how after, <laughs> after the Cold War, the world was going to fall apart um, because it just wasn't organized the way it yes. was supposed to be. And uh, there was just going to be non. Oh, it could only exist under constant threat. Something is that along it? those lines, or it just it was just because of the environment, mm. or this that thing, or the other thing. The world was just going to fall to pieces Collapse. without U.S. leadership. Was there not a thing? A lot of the West didn't predict the fall of the Soviet Union. So apparently that's why a lot of things like to predict things are collapsing. So it's like, oh, we'll just predict everything will collapse and then we'll get something right. Because, you know, we're so smart and we went to Harvard and we know everything, but we didn't predict this massive thing was you about know, to I happen. Think, I think that might have been that might have been part of it. But I think the biggest motivation mm -hmm. was in the aftermath in the 1990s of just trying desperately to find something for the Pentagon to do. And Somali piracy was yeah. one of those one of those examples. And of course, uh, 20, yeah. uh, 25 years later, Kaplan went and revisited uh, revisited it, the, his thesis and was like, well, you know, I was I was kind of right about the Middle East and and look at how bad North Africa's doing. <laughs> and he's just sort of conveniently admitting yeah. that the only reason yeah he was saying collapse. the only reason that the collapse was brought about it wasn't because of a lack of U.S. attention it was because the United States oh, yeah, destroyed Iraq and Libya. Um, so the Chinese base in Djibouti was sort of an outgrowth of this earlier Pentagon attempt to build panic and was to some extent Chinese mm -hmm. participation in policing uh, off of the coast of Somalia was at that point was was somewhat welcomed. And the fact is that mm -hmm. Chinese military expeditions or adventurism is only possible in the context. And this is true today is only possible in the context of having a U.S. invitation to, to do that. Uh, there is, at yeah. this point, because of those decades of economic development you know, and 10% uh, GDP growth a year development, and because uh, U.S. Uh, aggression has sponsored China to roll so much money into their army and navy, I think it is mm -hmm. probably true that for uh, 50 to 100 miles off of the Chinese coast, if the United States yeah. Navy was to attempt to operate there or attempt a amphibious landing of China, the U.S. Navy would lose. Uh, I think that's that's pretty mm -hmm. well established. The Chinese have enough missiles. It kind of reminds me of, um, I've seen analysis of the Soviet Union just before it collapsed. And it was very heavily, you know, defensively set up that would have been incredibly difficult for NATO to, you know, do a land invasion of Russia or even a sea invasion. So I do see similar things. It's, you know, it's easier to defend. So it's nice to have stuff that, you know, it makes it look like you can attack with it. But in reality, you're just like, please don't attack us, America. We are terrified. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's the root of it. I mean, the people are like, oh, the, we tend to really like make every growth in the Chinese nuclear arsenal. Oh, yeah, every growth is them about to Exactly. Invade. You know, they, they built another ship. <laughs> They've got these missiles that can sink aircraft carriers. They're just one ship away from taking Yeah, Hawaii. it's it's like so terrible with, with just absolutely no awareness of what we've been doing for the past 20 years and what our uh, presidents have been doing uh, talking about Taiwan. Uh now, I support yeah. Taiwanese independence, I guess, if it's cheap. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, China... <laughs> Just the idea of you looking at the bill going slightly too high, going, nah, I don't support it oh, that's, that's That is 100% my, uh, my approach. Uh, and I think China mm -hmm. can be cheaply defended. It can't be cheaply defended with aircraft carriers and fighter jets, but it can absolutely be cheaply defended with uh, $10,000 missiles. We've just got to give Taiwan the wherewithal mm -hmm. to, to build those. But well, I think they're also building their own. Hmm? They are finally, 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 they yeah. are. Uh, they should have been doing that. Uh, the second Obama started talking about a pivot to Asia a decade ago. One question about uh, America and Chinese relations is, you know, during the Clinton administration, the big emphasis, well, the, the, the tagline was, oh, we're investing in China because question mark, uh, then 
democracy would happen. Mm. Do you think there was ever any intent or genuine thought that this economic growth and slightly more capitalistic way would bring about democracy? Or was it just they wanted t-shirts and computers made cheap? I think cheap? they definitely wanted t-shirts and computers made cheap. But I also believe, yes, I think people mm -hmm. firmly believed in it. And the thing is, Rory, I still believe in it. I think I okay. think it made China a much more democratic, wealthier place. And I think what derailed mm -hmm. China's move in that direction was not some sinister, you know, natural Chinese evil or betrayal. It was fear of the United States. Uh, Xi Jinping is a mm -hmm. thug. He is a wannabe strongman, and he's really bad at what he's doing. Uh, Xi Jinping came to power in 2013. Obama, and he was going to come into power before that, of course, but like he, 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 oh, yeah, he didn't he was, start his um, time in power until 2013. Obama's pivot to Asia was 2012. Um, so like mm -hmm. the reason that China's looking so ugly and unpleasant right now is that for a solid decade now, we've been telling China we want to attack them. I think everybody assumes <laughs> that there's this, the, that, oh, Trump's the first person who was at all aggressive towards China, and that's just nonsense. Um, what happened yeah. in 2012, the pivot to Asia, this was a proudly announced policy of the U.S. government was, gee whiz, we've done, this is 2012, mind you, right? This is directly yeah. after uh, the Bush administration and after Obama in 2011, after, quite frankly, swindling China and Russia into giving him a Security Council resolution on Libya with the understanding mm -hmm. that NATO would not push for regime change. Um, after in yeah. 2000, you know, after the Bush administration, after Obama in 2011 pushed for regime change in Libya, after Gaddafi uh, was you know, yeah. essentially, I believe, uh, sodomized and murdered in the streets of uh, uh, Libya, and that was celebrated by. Uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton, they then announced a pivot Did, to Asia in 2012, where they said, oh, we're going to yeah. we're going to bring all the, the happiness and and peace and prosperity that we brought to the Middle East. We're going to bring that to Asia now. Mm -hmm. How much of a tragedy was the downfall of Libya? A, an extraordinary tragedy. The North Africa has mm -hmm. not recovered. There's a stereotype about African countries that they've um, they've just been mired in failure and economic decline since independence. And the tragedy is that because of the Cold War, that stereotype was largely true in the 1960s, 1970s, okay. 1980s, 1990s. It wasn't true of the 2000s. In the 2000s, because... Yeah. The Cold War had ended, the Cold War, the horrific Cold War aftermaths um, in the 1990s in Rwanda, the Congo and other mm -hmm. places, those calmed down. And then in the 2000s, Africa started growing by leaps and bounds. If you just look at the GDP, GDP growth figures yeah. for North Africa, for the poorest countries on the planet, the Sahel, the this sort of coast of the Sahara Desert, um, Mm -hmm. And Muammar Gaddafi and Libya were a large part of that. They were the economic linchpin. Because I've heard that um, Libya was wealthier than the poorer nations in Europe, just to give a context. So it would have been richer than the likes of Romania and Bulgaria. Yeah, on a GDP per capita basis, I believe that that's actually true. And if you consider how poor the neighboring countries were, that was a huge beacon of uh, job prospects and stability. Exactly. Uh, this was true of North Africa, and it was true of the Sahel, those incredibly poor countries. Mm -hmm. And those countries were growing by eight, to, not all of them, there's certainly exceptions, but they were growing oh, yes. by eight to 10% a year. They were growing at China mm -hmm. levels throughout the 2000s. Uh, ironically, the, the Bush, uh, this is a bit of a side uh, uh, a digression, but Ironically, that was one of the positive results of the Iraq war was Gaddafi got so scared that he stopped positioning himself as being anti and, you know, dove into bed with uh, Western capitalism and just started spewing mm -hmm. money everywhere. Uh, so it was an amazing period of time. And then mm -hmm. uh, Obama was talked into um, 
I think in part, uh, and this was something that someone had suggested recently, and I think this is actually probably on point, uh, France and Britain convinced Obama to destroy Libya. Well, because Britain had previous, uh, he supplied a lot to the provisional IRA. Britain had a lot of previous with him, and then huh. wasn't it the Lockheed bomber? Yes, Lockerbie. Lockerbie. The Lockerbie bomber is now reportedly on his deathbed in a AAA hospital, but some of the British victims' families are angry that he's free. And now families of people killed by Libyan explosives supplied by the Irish Republican Army are demanding compensation from the Libyan government. They could trace back. Um, the provisional IRA got Samtex, and they got it from him. Mm. And whatever way it is stamped, they're still able to trace. Occasionally, some dissidents are turned up, and they're like, "Oh, they still have Libya's Samtex." Oh, interesting. <laughs> and what, of course, the so they got a huge cache of weapons. But then I think very shortly after, then he told what he'd done. He's a, he's quite an interesting character. He was an interesting character, and don't get me wrong, he was a lunatic, and he is. Uh, I believe. Oh yes, yes. But I I have here's a you know the trolley question. Where it's like, would you let five people be killed or pull a lever so the five people get saved but one person gets killed? Do you know that trolley Indeed. dilemma? I always think of it with him. It's like, yes, he was a horrible man that, you know, in any normal society should be in jail. But it's like, if you take him out, you've now put millions of people in peril and, you know, thousands more people are going to be murdered and all this chaos will happen just because you want to get that bad guy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think that's that's what happened. Uh, the those yeah. the countries of the Sahel <laughs> that uh, had such an amazing first decade of this century have been completely stagnant. Mm -hmm. They've been dealing oh, yes. with. Well, it's quite anarchic. It's like it just sounds like a terrifying place. Well, the reason it's it's so anarchic is because Gaddafi, crazy man that he was, maintained large militia forces. Uh, and those mm -hmm. he would use militia forces from those countries uh, to maintain uh, power in his own country. And they were, uh, you know, quite understandably chased out uh, when he uh, when he yeah. was when he was killed. And that launched the sort of uh, wave of jihadis and militias and whatnot. Mm -hmm that uh, the country's never come back from. So you mentioned why Britain hated uh, Gaddafi. This was something that was proposed to me recently that actually makes a lot of sense. The reason why France was so eager to get rid of Gaddafi is because France still mm -hmm. kind of maintains an empire in it's West empire? Africa. Yeah. They, I think, are in charge of the currency. They have a absurd... Well, they were doing operations in Mali and stuff, and they still expect uh, uh, reparations, don't they? I'm not sure about the reparations thing, but the operations in Mali, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That Operation Barkhane, or Barkhane, I, I again, not, don't know how to pronounce that, uh, started in the aftermath of the destruction of Libya. They didn't, the French mm -hmm. were unhappy in the 2000s when all these countries were finally able to stand up off their knees and were beginning to enrich themselves yeah. thanks to Libyan largesse and destroying Libya and unleashing a wave of chaos allowed France mm -hmm. to go back in and essentially militarily occupy all these countries. All those countries that were sort of working with Libya and being, it's a bit like if a factory opens up, you have a lot of, you know, services will then open up to service the factory and the workers. It felt like it had a healing effect on all its neighbors. And then they've all gone yeah. kaput since. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, France, that's what, that's what I was thinking. France is so much... Um, ex-territory there that has still got its uh, grubby mitts on. Then, and Libya, uh, Gaddafi, when he came in from the cold in 2004, uh, started yeah. providing a real alternative uh, to France in West Africa. Didn't he try to be like a sort of like um, head of the Muslim world, was it? And it didn't quite work that out? That never worked out for him. So he, he, he pivoted then to be like, oh, I'll be the the leader of Africa, and then that kind of worked out really well for him. Worked out pretty well for him, and it he essentially founded, this might overstate it a little bit, but he certainly funded the founding of the African Union, which is a fairly serious organization. Which has been going well. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the, most recently they uh, helped broker peace in uh, Ethiopia. Um, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an ongoing organization, and really... 
Yeah. So essentially, to, to uh, answer your question, the destruction of Libya was a tremendous disaster for the mm -hmm. region that Africa is still trying to recover from. Um, yeah. So I've also heard, though, that um, Putin is sort of obsessed with that tape of Gaddafi being murdered. Makes sense to me. Because he just sort of considers that. Well, I know, was it an American predator drone attacked his convoy and that then meant the locals could catch up to him and finish him I off? I believe that's something along. I've, I've just found that so... So I could see him thinking something similar could happen him. Of course, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Why not? And I, people really underestimate how bruising the betrayal there was because people like, oh, the mm -hmm. UN Security Council doesn't do anything, blah, 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 blah. China and Russia allowed a Security Council resolution to defend Benghazi with the understanding that there would not be a regime change because of it. And then the United States went ahead mm -hmm. and did the regime change and basically made yeah. the UN Security Council useless uh, for all the years since. Mm -hmm. um, I think justifiably so from China and Russia's perspective. But you had mentioned earlier uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, and I think that's a that's a really yes. good uh, thing to cover because it's it's is it self-interested on China's part? Of course. Is it poorly oh, yes, yes. run in many places? Of course. Are there pieces mm -hmm. of infrastructure that aren't worth building that have gotten built? In part, yes. But it's also done tremendous good in Africa and other places, building infrastructure mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been built otherwise. And I think there's this yeah. real adoration for the idea in U.S. media that there's something sinister going on here, some sort of debt trap diplomacy. And this was a point yeah. I was attempting to make earlier is like China doesn't have the ability to enforce any of that. Um, if China wanted to <laughs> say, oh, no, no, that Sri Lankan port is ours, according to these contracts that we signed, China would have to convince the U.S. Navy to enforce that for them, <laughs> which is yes, which, which <laughs> seems unlikely, which seems unlikely. And there's so well, much... there's one thing I'd like to point out that's on, you know, on point mm -hmm. with there is, isn't it after World War Two, America basically said, uh, we will ensure all safe passage of commercial goods worldwide. I don't know that that was ever actually said in so many words, if there's some kind of proclamation okay. to point to or whatnot. There's this tremendous oversimplification of how all of this developed, I think put forward primarily mm -hmm. by Peter Zihan, a sort of popular geopolitic uh, politics guy, where it's like, oh, the first yeah. time that there was safe transit of goods was after World War II, or what have you, when it was mm -hmm. just sort of, I think there's a lot, there's a much deeper history of sort of the law of the sea and, you know, the British mm -hmm. Navy actually uh, formed a lot of those oh, yes, uh, duties uh, throughout the 19th century. Entirely certain there was uh, as clear a proclamation or a, or a shift around that as okay. is sometimes portrayed. But So we're obsessed with this idea of China's power to... Uh, you know, run off with large swaths of territory in Africa or strategic infrastructure, and it's 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 illusory. It doesn't it doesn't actually exist. I've used this analogy a lot, mm -hmm. um, but I'm still pretty convinced that you know, if the U.S. Navy were to attempt to invade China, I think the U.S. Navy would lose. I think that is the case. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, fifty or a hundred or two hundred miles off the coast of China. Um, I think the U.S. Navy would lose against the Chinese combined military forces. If the current Chinese Navy, uh, and there's a whole subset of Washington, D.C. pundits that are dedicated exclusively to lovingly describing the, the each individual new Chinese ship that is built, if the Chinese yes. Navy were to get into it with the frickin' U.S. Coast Guard off of the coast of Australia... <laughs> Um, I'm pretty sure the Chinese Navy would lose at this point. Keep hearing these reports. Oh, there's this new carrier. And then if you read about it, it's like they're really doing sea trials. And it might be 2035 before we, the Chinese know if this boat's either any good or yeah. not. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of the, the United States hasn't used an aircraft carrier in in anger in anything like a uh, even yes. fight in 80 years 
but the Chinese never have and probably never will. It's also these things seem to go through fads. There was an idea that, you know, the age of the aircraft carrier was dead and then the Falklands happened and it turned out to be very useful. So, yeah, it's hard to know with these things, these huge, incredibly expensive things, they all of a sudden seem to be not needed. And then turns out they oh, are. I'm very convinced that I'm very convinced that uh, aircraft carriers are completely useless uh, in, a, in a real oh. conflict. I think if if we if the United States wanted to go to war with Argentina today, I'm sure the aircraft carriers oh, would be, be incredibly useful. useful. But in a real conflict, in a real conflict with or even with the likes of Iran, there was this amazing article. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was Admiral Stavridis and Bloomberg talking about what would happen if war broke out between China and Taiwan. And there was a sentence in there, and maybe I imagined it because I don't think it's there currently, but I'm pretty sure he said (laughs) um, the first thing that the U.S. aircraft carrier fleet will do when war breaks out over Taiwan is get the hell out of the Pacific. Until, 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 until the Air Force... And, you know, until the war develops to the point where it's safe enough for an aircraft carrier to be there. Um, so it, it's just, yeah. it's you know, the aircraft carrier is a extraordinarily expensive way to bring planes to a place when we already have complete superiority and control of the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't have that okay. in a fight against China. Uh, so aircraft carriers simply aren't useful for the only plausible fight we'll be fighting over the next 50 years. Not a big fan of aircraft carriers. Will we cross uh, aircraft carriers off the Christmas list? Then? I think that'd be the. I think that'd be a good choice. I think that'd be a good choice. Okay, I was going to get my family one, but yeah, I, I don't want to be unfashionable. Well, I think you'd mentioned the uh, <laughs> you'd mentioned the U.S. homeless problem. I think for the price of a single aircraft carrier, hmm. we could solve the u.s the homes. u.s homeless problem yeah housing first and maybe leave on a good note with jimmy carter instead of the sar middle east note <laughs> G- oh yeah jimmy carter he does still build homes i mean god bless jimmy carter even though he is incredibly old but he's still at it that guy's still alive the most extraordinary thing is uh, i had some uh uh cancer in the family recently so so red red oh, up i'm sorry to uh, well, we, you know let's not knock on all the wood so far uh, happily uh, in yeah. remission but uh, so and ended up reading up on cancer a lot. And it's fascinating that Jimmy Carter uh, is actually one of the best examples of the cutting edge of cancer fighting technology. Uh, it's called immunotherapy mm-hmm. because about five, I don't okay. know, five, 10 years back, it was like, oh, Jimmy Carter's got a brain tumor. And well, and everyone's like, oh, that's so sad. And he was in his early 90s at that point and was like well okay you know you know this is this is it what a great run he's had yada yada and then it was like no actually uh he got a couple immunotherapy shots and the brain tumor's gone and he's off to build another habitat for humanity house man (laughs) build another house yeah i mean you know forget yeah i heard about him getting cancer and then going back to build more houses yeah i mean forget forget arnold schwarzenegger forget the terminator it's uh jimmy carter man (laughs) he just he just keeps on yes but he creates which is more impressive than destruction yeah indeed indeed Gotta love Jimmy Carter. Well, I think I think on that note, will we say goodbye and we'll see you next time. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob O'Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better. Isn't it your... Jib- jib-